We're going to be in 2 Peter. Peter this morning. We're going to cover, by the time we're done here, pretty much all of chapter 2. So we got a lot of work to do ahead of us. Uh, we are got just a couple of sermons left in our series, Not Home Yet. We've been walking through the books of 1 and 2 Peter as Peter tries to uh, guide us as exiles in this world, tries to give us kind of uh, ser- serve as a guide to say this is how you function in a world that is not your home. And, and what we're essentially trying to do is answer the question, how do we get home safely? How do we make it home safely, especially when home is a place we've never really been? Our heart longs for it, our bones ache for it, but we aren't there yet, and we've never actually been there, but we know home is where we are headed. That's you, and that's me, that is the guide that we are getting from Peter. And what we're going to do this morning, I'm going to jump right into this text, because we've got a lot to do, I'm going to jump right into this text, and we're going to let Peter's words kind of land on us with some weight as we get started this morning, and then we'll, we'll, we'll kind of try to figure out what it is that he's trying to say. And I'll warn you up front, 2 Peter chapter 2 is known to be one of, if not the most confusing chapter in all of Scripture. It is, uh, it has got a lot here, and I'm not going to answer all the questions that you have from it. We can talk about it if you want to talk about it later. I'm not going to answer all the questions, but I think we can follow and we can trace Peter's argument as we go throughout this chapter. So 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 1. He says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. That is some heavy words. Their destruction is not asleep. And we'll see what Peter's getting at here in just a minute. Over the past few years, I've wanted to pick up my reading. I've wanted to, uh, uh, to, to, to do more reading and, and specifically read uh, more varied types of things. And I've told you guys before, the best way so far for me to do that is through audiobooks. And so if I'm in my car and I'm by myself, I'm probably listening to some, t- some sort of uh, audiobooks. And I just chug through them as fast as I uh, as I can. And there's certain books that lend themselves for me to audiobooks more than others. I can't do theology books whenever I'm doing that because I'm, I want to make too many notes and underline too many things and, and argue with the, the author and do all kinds of stuff whenever I'm going through that. So I can't do that. Uh, but what, is, what has become my go-to is kind of biographies and uh, memoirs, historical books, or really the, the best has become the biographies that are really told more like a narrative, like they're telling uh, a story as they tell the story of this person's life. And I could give you recommendations if you're interested, but one of my favorites is a book called The Spy and the Traitor. Has anybody read that? Any chance anybody has read that? You should read that. It is a good book. It's a book about a, na- a man named Oleg Gordievsky. I don't speak Russian, so that's hard for me to say, but it's Oleg Gordievsky. And he worked as a Russian intelligence officer in the 70s and 80s and eventually became their top man in London. Uh, unknown to the Soviets, though, he was also working for MI6 in London. He was a double agent. He was what every spy agency fears the most. 
You see, double agents are the most dangerous thing that a spy agency can have. They have access to your secrets, uh, but their job is to make contact with the other side and learn their secrets. So what happens is uh, that, that person who has access to both now holds all the cards. So they have to be supremely trustworthy. It's one thing to learn something new about the other side. That is always a big win. But the loss on the other side is massive uh, in terms of what happens whenever one of your own gives up the, the most secret information that you have. Double agents can be manipulated. They can protect the other side from, uh, from, from things that are going on, and they can do that from the inside without ever even having to make contact. They are incredibly dangerous, and they are what every spy agency fears the most. And what they'll tell you is that while the threat from the outside is real and concerning, it's the threat from the inside that can truly bring you to your knees. This morning, Peter is going to give us a warning. He's going to give us a warning, and he's going to talk about these guys that effectively serve as double agents. Back in 1 Peter, Peter labored to warn us about the threat from the outside. If you were here in the fall, you heard us walking through this since last September. He talks about the threat from the outside, how this world was stacked against us, how the things that the world values, how the pressures from this culture around us will be at war with our hearts and, and, and how we've been called to live. So he, he labors to give us guidance on what to do with the pressures from the outside. But now in Second Peter, he shifts gears. Peter has, has changed his focus. And what we're going to see is that as he shifts, he's moved from warning us about what is going on outside in the culture to now he wants to warn us about this new dire threat. As Peter writes this, this is some of his final words. We've seen this the last couple of weeks. It's some of his final words before he would be martyred. And he knew it was coming quick. And so now he wants to do a few things. He wants to remind us of the truth. That was chapter 1. We saw this already. Now in chapter 2, he wants to warn us of the threat from within, the double agents, what he's going to call false teachers. So you can kind of change those in and out if you would like, because the threat from within is serious, and it can have serious consequences for us, and it can happen in ways that we don't even know because it's so subtle. The threat is serious for the teachers that peddle the false teaching, and it's, and it's, and it's serious for those that follow them as well. You see at the end of verse 3 there where, where, where he's talking about that, he says that, that, that their destruction is not asleep. His words are almost poetic. He says that for these false teachers and for their followers, their judgment is real. And the God who is going to judge them is real. The time will come when they will answer for what they've done. Peter is not playing around here. He is not playing games at all. So let's dive into the meat of this chapter, and I'm going to read these big chunks. And I, the best way, I think, for you to take this is to take these in big chunks. Because if you, it, this is one of those things you can get lost in the trees and miss the forest. So we're going to go through these big chunks and kind of, and kind of look at it in that way. So 4 through 10 is what we're going, to, we're going to read right here. So don't get too bogged down. Let's just take it in a big chunk. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Peter says, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, so he's talking about destruction and the destruction that is coming, right? 
So now he's going to make his case, and he's going to give a series of if-then statements. He says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought up a flood, brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and he heard. Then, so if, 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 then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Now that's a serious paragraph right there. He covers a lot of ground in just a few verses. But that whole thing that I just read, in the, in the original language, that's one long sentence. Because he's trying to convey one very central idea. God punishes the ungodly, and God saves the godly. So that's what he's trying to say out of all of that. Now, not the perfect. He's not saying that he saves the perfect and punishes the imperfect. You see, you know, it talks about Lot a lot in there. And if you, have, if you know the story of Lot, if you go back and read the story of Lot, you don't walk away from that saying, that's a pretty good dude. He's a good guy. He's a real super godly guy. You don't walk away from that. But Peter's point is that even Lot, who was far, far from perfect, even Lot looked at what was going on around him and said, oh my goodness, this is terrible. And what Peter wants you to see is that God is right and able to punish those that deserve it. And he is also right and able to save those whom he chooses to save. And so this is what he goes through out this, uh, throughout this whole paragraph that he's trying to to, to drive home. So he uses all these examples. Some are explicit in Scripture. A lot of these actually come from just popular Jewish, Jewish teaching at the time that these churches would have been familiar with that he's writing to. In all of these examples, he's simply trying to, to, to show that God has not turned a blind eye. God does not just let bygones be bygones. He will judge, but he will not forget those that are his. Those points both hold throughout the rest of this chapter that will be very important. It's a heavy, heavy picture, but it is a hopeful picture all at the same time. Now look in verse 10. He keeps driving this point home here. So we're going to do 10 through 16. Next paragraph, next chunk. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. Bold and willful, this is the second half of verse 10. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. He's talking about these false teachers now. He's describing the false teachers. He says, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pr pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, so these false teachers, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction." suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. 
They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Whew. Again, there is a lot there. We could, we, could spend, we could spend the next several weeks just going back and recounting all these different stories and all these different things that Peter is drawing from. But I'm telling you, Peter is full on scorched earth against these guys. He's not holding anything back. He's come out of the gates and he says, let me tell you about these false teachers. Let me tell you about these double agents and what they have done. He has no quarter for them. He says they run their mouth to the point of blasphemy about things that they have no clue about. They're like animals that only follow their basis instincts. And they will eventually be led to ruin. They sin in the daylight with no care of who sees them says they even eat with you. This may be a reference to the Lord's Supper. They feast with you. So they, they, they stand right next to you in church, maybe at the, 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 at the Lord's table. They, they, they come and they stand at your side while they revel in their sin. They have no shame. They are not afraid to do it in the middle of the day. No hesitation. They are vile people. Adultery, greed, enticing the weak. It just kind of keeps going and going. One, one more paragraph, and then we'll, we'll reflect back on this. He's, he's going to make a shift here now. He's going to go from describing the false teachers and how, the, how they work to now exposing them for who they really are. So 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 17 now. Next paragraph, next chunk. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. That's a, that's a great word picture right there. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, and the last state has become worse for them than the first." For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog refer, re, returns to its own vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. So Peter wants us to see. He's desperate for us to see. I don't, do you hear the urgency in his words? Do you hear the kind of almost shock value he's trying to give his words? He's trying to draw you into this to see the, the vileness of these guys. He wants you to see what it is that they're doing and how bad it is. He uses harsh imagery to describe these teachers. He's kind of trying to smack us into reality to say, look at what they're doing. Now, these guys are tricky. They're smooth. They sound good. They know the lingo. They know the vocabulary. They're good at what they do. It sounds enticing what they're saying. But make no mistake, these teachers are not what they seem. Verse 17 it says that they are waterless springs. They talk a big game. They got a lot to say, but they produce nothing. 
The teaching that they bring you cannot satisfy. They always leave you wanting more. They always leave you feeling like you haven't quite got it. You come thirsty and you walk away even thirstier. That's who these guys are. Says that they are, verse 17 says they are mist driven by a storm. They aren't anchored by anything. They'll blend in and they'll go wherever they can get an audience and a dollar. They'll teach anything that will get them a platform and they'll go wherever the cultural winds will take them. Now they may talk a game like they're a culture warrior. Now listen, I mean, Peter's stark words can make it seem like these guys are obvious, but they may talk a big game like they're a culture warrior, but the reality is, that, and, and, and they, may, they, may, they may put it under, uh, under this, this guise of like bringing God back to America, just follow me and do what I do here in these things, but they're really just following the cultural winds and trying to get more Instagram followers and more people to see their Facebook videos. Don't buy it. Don't buy it. But why should you not buy it? So they're, 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 they're waterless springs. They're mists that are just driven by the cultural winds. And Peter says, don't buy it. Why? It says they preach freedom, but they themselves are slaves. They talk a good game, but they are as deeply, if not more deeply, enslaved than anyone else they talk to. They talk about freedom, but they're bound by their flesh. And they will use you as a means to satisfy that end. Peter says, you name it, they're bound by it. You may not see it now, but don't buy in. That guy doesn't know freedom. He'll be right back in the muck as soon as you turn your back. And as soon as you, as soon as you just take your eye off for just a second, he'll be right back in it. Don't buy it. Now, I'll be honest at this point. So we've gone through most of chapter 2 here. At this point, Peter's portrait here is so unflattering that it probably leaves you wondering, it leaves me wondering, do any of us actually know anybody like this? I mean, it's almost a caricature to the point that it's absurd. Because what he puts out there is like, Peter, I don't know, I've, I've never met anybody like this. This is such a terrible description of somebody. If somebody like that came through the door, I could pick them out like that. I'd know it in a heartbeat. Peter, that, just, that doesn't sound like, like it's something I need to worry about. But listen, Peter wouldn't offer this warning as one of the final words that he gives to the church if people weren't following these teachers. But they do. These double agents are clever. They know our vocabulary. They know our schemes. They know our game plan. They know what we're trying to do. They know how to get under our skin. They know what gets under our skin. They know what tempts us. They know what draws our hearts. They know what gets us moving. They know what rouses us out of our comfort zones. They know all these things about us. The problem is their goal is not godliness. It's one of power, sex, greed, manipulation, preying on the weak, all for the purpose of elevating their platform. And it's all right there in front of us for us to see. I'll be honest, there's a part of me that wants to start like naming names here. 
wants you to start like laying it out. Let me, let me create the Providence no-fly list. Like this is the ones that you can't, you don't need to be listening to, you don't need to watch. I would like to be able to do that. I'm tempted to just start read them, reading them off. It, w- it wouldn't take long for us to start kind of pulling them out and we could, we, we, but here's the thing. In the end, that's not going to be all that helpful. I mean, it might be helpful a little bit. It's a good conversation for you and I to have over a cup of coffee. So if you want to ask the question, hey, I've been listening to this guy. Do you think that this is really helpful for me to be listening to? Then let's have a conversation. That's part of what I want to be able to, to, to walk through and help you with uh, as, a, as a pastor. But uh, in the end, what I want far more is for what, what Peter wants for you guys. I want you to be able to discern this for yourself. I want you to be able to take apart this teaching and say, wait a minute, what is it that I'm doing here? And listen, there's a lot of places that we can point for these false teachers, right? So it might be somebody standing up doing exactly what I'm doing. Or it might be a cable news uh, pundit. Or it might be a radio host. Or it might be the celebrity Christian on Instagram. Or it might be that popular worship leader that's got the songs out that you like so much. Like it could be any of those things. I mean, the reality is, I read an article this week by uh, Russell Moore. I don't know if you saw this in Christianity Today, but he has a quote in there where he basically says, all you really need to get a following is know how to post the right memes and put the right presidential slogans on your Facebook page, and then all of a sudden you're a teacher and you've got a followers, and you've got followers. We've got to be careful. We've got to be very careful. Because these guys know the right words, they know the right memes, they know the right slogans, and they know how to get a platform. So I'm not going to name all these different names. But what I do want you to do is figure out how to spot the wolves for yourself. So here's what I want to do with our remaining time here. If you weren't here for chapter 1 of 2 of Peter, that's fine. We can, we, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to take first Peter, I mean, sorry, second Peter chapter one, I guess confusing, second Peter chapter one and second Peter chapter two, and we're going to lay them next to each other. All right. This is what we're going to do for the rest of our time. Because what Peter does in the first chapter is he kind of lays out the positive argument for the counter to the negative argument in chapter two. So if you've got your Bibles, you're going to want to flip back and forth between these two because not all of this is going to be able to come up on the screen. And if you're a note taker, man, the next like 15 minutes is for you. My sermons are not always built for note takers, but this one, this one's for you. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through this and here's what I want you to do. I want to draw out seven comparisons, comparisons between chapter one and chapter two of second Peter. I'm going to lay out seven comparisons And I want to see what it is that Peter lays out for us so that we can identify the double agents among us. All right? So this is what we're going to do. And now, remember, as we go through these, some of these kind of overlap a little bit. Some of these seven all say say similar things in different ways. They overlap just a little bit, but they all hang together. Because you can get somebody who gets like two or three of them, but they don't get all seven. They all hang together. They all work together. So, number one, the number one kind of characteristic to draw out between false and true teachers, number one is you consider the source. Consider the source. Peter says in uh, chapter 1, verse 3, that we do not follow cleverly invented stories. We're not making this stuff up. 
We're not just making this stuff up. But in, in, in chapter 2, verse 3, he talks about these false teachers and he says that they use false words. They are false teachers using false words to make false promises to preach a false gospel. Right? So you see the difference there. Consider the source. What is the source of their teaching? Are they using false words to, to, to manipulate or are they simply reporting what they've seen and what they've heard? Now be careful here. False teaching doesn't mean that they don't use the Bible. What it means is that they, because they know, remember, they know the lingo. They know how to manipulate it. They know how to make it dance. And they're probably better than a lot of others. The question is, to what end are they using it? What is the goal? And that leads us to our second one. Consider the message. So consider the source, then consider the message. For, for, for Peter, the trustworthy messengers are the messengers that are focused on Jesus. You see that in chapter 1, verse 3. He says, in Jesus we have everything we need for life and godliness in him. Jesus is the substance and Jesus is the goal. But for the false teachers, Jesus is at best a means to an end. He's there for something else. In, in, in chapter 2, verse 3, it speaks of heresies and outright denying the master who bought them, denying Jesus. In chapter 2, verse 18, it says, it, you see that their message is really kind of built around boasts and enticements, right? So the false teachers are going are gonna to draw you in by, by preying on your biggest fears, they're going to draw you in by kind of laying some stuff out there that your flesh is already drawn to. Peter says, we got Jesus, and that's all we got to give. It's a big difference. Again, be careful, because they know the lingo. They probably won't deny Jesus outright. They might just carefully question some of his te teachings, maybe, maybe kind of coyly dismiss him as a man of his time, but... But it's what they use him for is what you need to be worried about. Is it to produce godliness in their followers? Or are they preying on their followers and using Jesus as a means to something else? To power, to platform, to fame, to fear, to manipulate, any of those type of things. All right, so number three. Now consider the goal. Consider the goal of the teachers. Ask your question. Where do you end up if you follow this teaching. So in chapter 1, verse 4, Peter promises that the true follower of Jesus will escape the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. It's a pretty good promise. That's where it goes if we follow Jesus and if we are, if we are bound up in him. But for those that follow the teaching of the false teachers, the end looks very different. They don't escape corruption, but instead, it says even the teachers themselves are slaves to corruption. Not only do their followers fall to sin, they are enslaved by it too. In the end, a simple litmus test for false teachers is this. Do you wind up with more freedom and more hope or do you wind up with less? Do you end up with more hope and more freedom or does the message heap condemnation and leave you worse than it found you? As a rule, over the long run, do I find myself overcoming sin and finding freedom from it, or do I find myself mired in the same old sins and tangled up in new ones? 
Now, this is in the long run. This isn't say you can't struggle with sin. That's not what this is saying. It's saying, where does the, 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 the trajectory of the teaching take you? And I'll warn you, this, this requires a high level of self-reflection and examination. And it's probably best done in community with others. But it follows Peter's instructions in, cha- in chapter 1, verse 10, to, to make your election and your calling sure. So consider the goal. Number four, consider the result. Consider the result. So Peter makes it clear in chapter 1 that when we follow the way of Jesus, there is a fruit that is produced in us. This is chapter, or this is chapter 1, uh, 5 through uh, 8, 5 through 9. I'm just going to read it. It's easier if I do it this way. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So that is what it looks like when you follow Jesus. Contrast, when you follow the false teachers, it, you can see this in, in chapter 2 and verse 10, 12, and 14. They indulge in lust, they despise authority, they are irrational animals following their base instinct. If it just feels good, do it. It's the way I was made, I was born this way. Sound familiar? Eyes full of adultery and an appetite for sin. Eyes for greed. Stark contrast between the two lists, wouldn't you say? Stark contrast between those two things. In short, we can sum it up this way. Which one makes you look more like Jesus? Which one makes you more godly? Which one makes you want the things you already wanted without Jesus? Do you just want the same things you wanted before, only with a little Jesus sauce thrown on them? If so, then if so, if that's the case, then you're, you're, you're probably listening to a false teacher. If you find your heart being changed, your desires being changed, if you find yourself in a place saying, I never would have wanted this before. This is not, I didn't want self-control. I didn't want to love this guy that's in my front porch community. I didn't want to be in a discipleship group with that guy because he's weird. I didn't want to do those kind of things. I didn't want to be with those kind of people or... Do you find yourself in the other one saying, give me more, I need more, I want more, this is who I am, satisfy me, affirm me, do everything for me because it's all about me. Which one are you? Are you over here saying, I can't be with that person because that person doesn't think like I think? Or are you over here saying, I'm going to love those that are around me and I'm going to care for those that are around me because that's what Jesus has done for me. Which one is it? One is the gospel. The other is a false religion. Number five, consider the why. Consider the why. Why should you listen to the teaching that these people are bringing? Peter says in chapter one, he doesn't say, remember, he doesn't say, you should listen to me because I have power. You should listen to me because I'm the chief apostle. You should listen to me because I have the keys of hell and of death, and Jesus gave them to me. You should listen to me because I have all these things. Peter doesn't say that. Peter says, you should listen to me because I saw Jesus. I saw him high and lifted up. 
I saw him on the, on the, the Mount of Transfiguration. I saw him transfigured and the glory shining around him, and I can testify to what I've seen. You should listen, not because of anything within me or any kind of authority given to me. You should listen because I'm testifying about Jesus. And you should listen because I'm doing nothing but teaching the prophetic word, which was more and more confirmed the more we knew about Jesus. You listen to me because I'm just simply teaching you about Jesus. For us, it's because you listen to the message of a true teacher because the true teacher is teaching the Bible, the message of the apostles and the confirmed prophetic word from the Old Testament. That's what you listen to. That's the criteria by which we judge true and false. That's what it comes down to. For the false teacher, the motivation to listen is wholly different. It's not because it is about Jesus. It's because they manipulate and, and have smooth talk on the basis of one primary thing. What is that in verse 18 of chapter 2? The enticement of the flesh. What do people want to hear and what do people want to gain? And let me craft my message to affirm that in them. If they can find that, then they can win their crowd. The double agent says, listen to me because I'm going to tell you what you want to hear anyway. So come listen to what I have to say. Number six, consider your satisfaction. Consider your satisfaction. This, this is a simple Dr. Phil question here. How's that working for you? That's, that's the question here. What does the teaching do for you? In chapter 1, verse 8, the true teaching leaves you more effective for Jesus. Now, don't misunderstand this analogy, but, but hear me here. A satisfied customer is always the best salesperson. One beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. That's all we are. If we are satisfied in Jesus, if our thirst is quenched, we're going to go, if our hunger is filled, we're going to go out and share that message. Why are we effective for Jesus? Because he's changed us. And we have the power of a testimony of a changed life. So consider your satisfaction. But the false teaching of the false teachers leaves you thirstier than when you came. A waterless spring. I like to use the analogy of cotton candy. It tastes good in your mouth, but it's just sugar. It's just sugar. Not only does it not satisfy, if that's all you eat, it'll kill you. It's just cotton candy. And then the seventh one, and perhaps the most sobering, is, is consider your outcome. Consider your outcome. In chapter 1, verse 11, the true follower of Jesus has, and I quote, richly provided and is richly provided an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But as we saw in the first three verses of chapter 2, the false teacher brings swift destruction, followed with a stern warning that their destruction is not asleep. What awaits us at the end is either entrance to heaven at the feet of Jesus, or swift destruction. As Peter says, destroyed in our destruction. Friends, this is our rubric. 
This is our guide. And be careful here, because Peter says that this is about the teachers and their followers. Let Peter's words be your filter for who you listen to, for who you allow to teach you. Let, let me also address the most obvious and pressing issue here, kind of the elephant in the room, at least I feel like it's kind of the elephant in the room. Just because I stand up here and teach about false teachers does not mean that I am safe. Just because I'm the one that brings it up doesn't mean, well, I don't have to look at that guy. I don't have to evaluate him. No, you evaluate me on this criteria. You evaluate me on this. Spend some time here at Providence. If you've been here for a long time, then, then, then answer these questions. Give it a little time. Come Sunday in and come Sunday out and then judge me on this criteria. Consider my message. Am I teaching my own opinions, my own agenda, or do I bring you back to the apostles and the prophets and the word of God? Do I bring you back to the Bible? Am I pointing you back to Jesus and the hope that we have in him or to some other savior? to your works, to another person, to a political figure, to some, some, some other hero that I have in the faith, some political ideology in general. What am I pointing you to? Am I leading you to freedom from sin or encouraging you to embrace or shrug off sin and just excuse it away? Am I leading you to, to the hope of Scripture or am I just scaring you and manipulating you with culture wars and agendas. After coming for a few months, do you walk away feeling thirstier and emptier than when you started? Or do you find yourself listening to the Bible and growing in its truth and that the Spirit is quenching your thirst? Are you becoming more like Jesus? Are you growing in godliness, growing in love, growing in kindness and joy? Or are you growing in hate and anger and resentment and bitterness looking for a fight. Friends, if my teaching doesn't pass that test for you, go find another church and find another pastor. And if my teaching doesn't pass that test for most of you in here, fire me and get yourself another pastor. That is the test. That is what we have to look at. My job is to point you to the Bible, to lead you in the Spirit, to walk with you together as we together seek to be more like Jesus and become what he has called us to be. My call is to lead you to hope like a man in the desert looking for a drink. Not heap burdens on your head, not point to other saviors, not find our hope in other things. That's my job. But it's not just me. This is anyone that speaks into your life. This is the cable news pundit. This is the radio news host. This is the friend that you listen to for advice. This is the Christian celebrity on Instagram. This is the big time pastor that you listen to on your podcast. This is the popular worship leader. This is the books that you read. Do any of these things that you apply into your life. And they can come under the name of Christian. They can come under the name of secular. They can come in every shape and every form. They can come in, 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 in ways disguised as angels of light. And they can come in ways disguised as, as, as non-religious at all. And they're just simply trying to, to, to manipulate and use you in other ways. 
Whatever it is that you allow to speak into your life, whatever it is that says this is who you should be, do you, you evaluate it by this. It all gets evaluated by the same criteria. And you can probably boil it down to just one or two things. Do you love Jesus more? Do you love people more? And do you live those things out? If not, be careful. Because you might just be under the sway of a double agent. And that might be the most dangerous way to live of all. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning, I thank you for the witness of your word, for the witness of Peter, who issues this warning to us that we do not have to wonder whether or not we are following a a false teacher, but instead we can evaluate that by your word, by the teaching of Peter, by the teaching of the prophets, by the life of Jesus, and by the testimony of the Spirit. Father, I pray this morning that we would do well to examine our own lives, to examine those that we listen to, to examine those that speak into our lives. And we'd filter out any kind of noise and filter out any kind of false teaching. And Father, we cling to the promise that Peter gives that while the ungodly will be destroyed and their judgment is not asleep, that the godly, those that Peter tells us are in Christ, will be saved. And it is in that, Father, that we place our hope. Yes, we want our lives to reflect you and your goodness and your mercy and your grace. But that is because we we know that goodness and that mercy and that grace in Christ. Father, help us to love you, to love others. Encourage us this morning in the truth. In Christ's name we pray, amen.